listeners, this is Bree. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Talk murder to me. Talk murder to me. I think there's a podcast called that. I think there is too. Talk murder to me. After you said it. It makes me think of two chains, but that's just me. Two chains? No, that was Mike Jones. Mike Jones? Whatever happened to him? I have no idea. Oh my gosh, that's like circa... 06? Yeah, definitely. 05, 06? For sure, high school. Yeah, Most for definitely. sure, high school. Most definitely. Okay. So I'm really excited to talk about my case today, and as I was driving over here, it kind of, I was like, oh, this is perfect, because I feel like in some ways it kind of ties into your last case that you did about, um, what did we dub her? Looney Lisa? Yes. Yes. About the ex-girlfriend who killed (laughs) off the new girlfriend and pretended that it was the ex-girlfriend for years. So this case today is focused around something that I do not believe gets talked about enough. And in my opinion, it is one of the most terrifying aspects in the true crime world and it's about stalking Ooh, that's true yes i have never been a victim of stalking i mean i've had exes show up unannounced at my place on you know like one occasion or something like that and that in of itself is like kind of jaunting yeah and so to be to be victim of like a full-blown stalking incident is fine it's petrifying we're gonna go through this case and this is about a man by the name of daniel thompson and he is the stalker and i'm gonna be giving you guys some some statistics throughout this uh this case that i think are just really kind of mind-boggling in just the fact that they even exist so An estimated 13.5 million people are stalked in a one-year period in the United States alone. Whoa. 13.5 million people. That's so many. And that's not even like the instances of how often the stalking occurs, you know? Like, that's just the people that are affected by it. And most of these statistics that I'm going to give to you come from the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center. There's a bunch of other really good stuff on there. So if you're interested in looking more in depth to some of these, I'm going to be bringing up a few key ones that tie specifically into this case. It's crazy and crazy that it's really not that hard to believe that stuff like this happens as often as it does, especially in our world of technology nowadays. Oh, yeah. I think that that just opens up the floodgates to a whole new avenue of how these situations can be carried out entirely, carried out in part, used as a tool. Right. Um, I mean, you even look at like catfishing, you know, like somebody could totally be disguising themselves as somebody else and you have no idea that it's this other person. Yeah. You know, social media and internet and technology in general has opened up, I think, a lot of the how it starts. Sure. Too, or Mm -hmm. the first contact. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's like that's why that number is probably so big. It's yeah, it's it's huge. So to 
talk first about Daniel Thompson's upbringing. Um, he grew up in the Midwest. He grew up in Kansas, a typical little small town. Everyone knew each other. No one locked their doors. You know, just that really comfortable, quaint, small, small town, town living. He did have a hard time early on in his life building relationships with people because he said that he just didn't trust people. He doesn't really give like a whole lot of specifics for why this lack of trust existed, but he does identify that he was diagnosed with PDD at 12 or 13 years old. And this is part of the autism spectrum. So just lacking that like social connection with people, a lot of people on the autism spectrum, my younger brother is autistic. You know, that's a, a big thing that most people on the spectrum lack is that that human connection, being able to read social mm, cues, okay. knowing what what behavior is appropriate, maybe sometimes in certain situations. And so he chalks up a lot of his, you know, ability to navigate emotions and build productive and constructive relationships with people um being centered around that so contextually i think the dd part probably means deficit disorder at some point probably Do let you know me what the let me is? just actually look that fully up real did quick did you say p as in peter or mm-hmm. b as in boy okay so pervasive developmental disorder uh-huh. okay yes um other otherwise not specified so is one of four disorders which have been collapsed into the diagnosis of the autism spectrum disorder. Gotcha. So kind of a branch off of everything that encompasses that. Just social awkwardness, unawareness. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically. And, you know, even despite him, you know, claiming that he had a hard time trusting people, he does say that his upbringing he was brought up in a good home he didn't really have any troubles at home or anything like that so we fast forward in 1991 Daniel meets his first love Daniel is 17 years old at the time and he meets a young girl named Angie at summer camp we don't have a last name for for Angie I think a lot of these people's full identity are disclosed for a reason. He loved her green eyes and he really like hones in really heavily in this interview on how much he just loved her green green eyes and it's almost like like in an obsessive yeah. way that he okay. talks about it. You know, I don't really know how else to describe it other than it just like kind of leaves you feeling icky. But yeah, he loved her green eyes. He loved how sweet she was. And with him being 17, she was only 15 at the time. And her dad really did not love that age gap. And so he's yeah. like, you know, why don't you come around in a year? That's fair. That's fair. You know, eight, 18, <clears throat> even though, you know. Supposedly, age is just a number. You know, 16 to 18 feels maybe a little bit more appropriate than 15 to 17. When you're you're younger, the age gap, the the lower it is, it's the better, but... It's it's still far apart it's, when you're younger. It's difficult in those high school years, yes. for sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember being a freshman and like on the download dating a senior and like not <laughs> wanting my parents to find out about that at all cuz I was like they're never Sorry, Sue. they're never going to approve that. But yeah, he's like, you know, come come back in a year, you know, we'll revisit this idea and he came back pretty much exactly. Mm. A year later. He gave him a goal. He gave him a goal and and he ran with that. He claims that, you know, at that year point, that's when 
he called her up and that she was very excited that he had called Hmm. her. Just to give you a little statistic on age and stalking, more than half of all victims of stalking indicated that they were stalked before the age of 25. Wow. And nearly one in four were stalked before the age of 18. Whoa. Which is terrifying. That That is so young. So, so young. And... I mean, these are pretty recent statistics, and that just makes me wonder, like we were talking about initially, how much does social media play into that? Oh, yeah. And and just those avenues, or even, I think with your last case, we were talking about, you know, people getting mixed signals, mm-hmm. you know, in the workplace and not understanding that the girl making your latte is only 16 years old. She might look 19 or 20, but she's only 16. And, you know, you got a guy hanging around in the lobby doting over, you know, one of your, your minor coworkers or employees. And that's rough. So rough. So from Angie's perspective, Daniel was Angie's real first boyfriend. When he called her a year later, she had kind of told him like where she lived. And before she knew it, he was coming down the road to her house in his truck. Oh, damn. Like hunted her down immediately. And she really did like him when she first met him. And at the beginning of their relationship, it was very, very normal. But as time went on, he started to get more possessive. Mm which is probably one of your first red flags for many, many reasons and where a relationship is going to start to become unhealthy. He would call her all hours of the night. If he wasn't able to get a hold of her, he would send friends to get a hold of her to find out where she was and who she was with. He would show up where she was at, all of that kind of progressive behavior. And that really started to concern Angie's parents. I mean, rightfully so. You got a you got your daughter's boyfriend calling all hours of the night. I'm sure she's probably disclosing to her parents at this point, you know, hey, like he's kind of being a bother to me. He's showing up at places where I'm at. I don't really feel super great about this, but nothing had really gotten like super serious yet. Mm. It was just kind of that. Beginning love. That beginning love, possessive behavior. And she does say, you know, at at this time in my life, I just thought that this is what love was and this is what a relationship is. And I think that's why a lot of the statistics say it's it happens a lot in younger people Mm -hmm. because this is their first experience, their first interaction of a relationship a lot of the times. Yeah. And they don't know the difference between what's a healthy relationship and what's not. Absolutely. So if at the beginning they start getting love bombed, mm-hmm. they think that's normal. They, you know, to a certain extent they feel loved. Right. Cared for. Right. Attention's being given and it gets confused. Absolutely. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be getting this much attention. Right. My boyfriend should want to call me this much. My boyfriend should want to spend this much time with me or girlfriend. Right. You know, this totally goes both ways. So, yeah, I could just understand that being so confusing and especially within a first relationship yeah. at 16 years old. So with Angie's parents, you know, kind of starting to draw concerns around all of this, they set parameters around the hours of when Daniel could call or be around the house. But this didn't stop Daniel (laughs) at all. He was determined to the point where he would even sneak in through the doggy door of their house. What the fuck? Yes. 
And Angie would wake up in the middle of the night to him standing over her in bed and waking her up. Absolutely fucking not. No. Mm-mm. Get a smaller doggy door. That's... Or block it. Or block it. Wow. Yeah, that would be... That would be so scary. I mean, phone calls and like showing up is one thing, but then you're like waking up in the middle of the night to someone standing over you. No, no thank you. Can't even respect the dog space. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> exactly. And so the vast majority of stalking victims are stalked by someone they know. 40% of these victims are stalked by a current or a former intimate partner. And 42% of these are stalked by someone who is an acquaintance. Mm, so yeah. that could be a friend that could be the customer at your work you know any someone who you're friends with on social media yeah. but you don't know them know them so i mean that makes up 82 percent of stalking cases is that you these people know the person they've had some kind of interaction mm-hmm. whether they realize it was romantic or not exactly okay. yeah yeah so Time moves on, and Daniel and Angie do develop um, a more serious relationship into their adult years. So we fast forward to 1996, and Angie and Daniel do end up getting married. They have three boys together. What? Yeah. Yeah, they start a full-blown family. Him standing over her head, uh, her bed did not scare her off? She thought it was love. Oh, shot. She oh thought it was goodness. love. I I have no other explanation than that's oh, how she was reading. That's heartbreaking. Into, so it really is heartbreaking. I mean, I that's feel... That's not love. I, did, I most definitely did not have relationships and things figured out when I was 16 years old, but I can't really confidently say that I would stay with somebody if they showed up standing over me in the middle of the night. And they, no. No. Mm -mm. I think that that would have been pretty much a a deal breaker. Oh, let me tell you, my parents would have said, absolutely not. You're not talking to that person. You would have been Fitz thrown. Uh Uh-huh. But also my parents would have been like, absolutely not. Yeah, that's not happening. There's no breaking into my house. Yeah. So despite all of that, They do get married and start a family together. And at this time, they were really happy. Although after time in this young marriage, things did eventually start to unravel. Um, Daniel develops this temper. He, I think, you know, maybe could have been not necessarily overwhelmed with like the dad life, but he just kind of liked to do his own thing. He did not like being told what to do. He Mm. wanted to do things on his own schedule. And so he liked staying out at night, which would leave Angie at home with the three kids and just kind of more or less wanted to do, you know, whatever he wanted. And Angie says that things really start to progress at this point and that the violence from Daniel to Angie started small and escalated. So some of the first things that started to happen is if they were arguing and he was mad at her, he would make her sleep on the floor and not in the bed. He would get angry and throw things, you know, just kind of, again, some of those next red flags to keep an eye out for. And then it progressed to pushing and shoving. And eventually he was beating her. But when he beat her, he would beat her in the head so that if he left bruises, you wouldn't be able to see them. Right. You're sitting there like, uh, you know, like acknowledging and agree and like that, that happens. No, that's that happens. So, so 
just fucked and sneaky and probably happens. I mean, obviously more than we realize because you can't see the bruises, but then also like you're getting beat in the head and that just makes me feel so physically ill to be thinking about that. Just the degrading stuff that, you know, little things like making her sleep on the bed, on the, on the floor. Right. That's of course not physically hurting her. Right. I mean, probably woke up with a sore it's back. It's a power move. But it's a power move. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's causing her to, it's all, it's making her go through something that he knows would be shameful to tell someone else. Mm-hmm. Therefore, Absolutely. he holds there the power yeah. of, well, go ahead and, I mean, if you want to tell someone, but you're going to have to admit you did something disgraceful mm-hmm. or shameful, like sleeping on the floor like a dog. Right. And, you know, it's what you said perfectly, I think, describes how Angie was feeling because I don't really think it sounds like she had a whole lot of people to turn to. Yeah. Because Angie was in enough turmoil that she describes that she would, like, open the living room curtains and write help on the window in the hopes that somebody walking by would see this written in the window and, like, call the cops and be like, hey, maybe you should do a wellness check on this house. They've got help written in the window. So now I'm going to be, like, super hyper aware. I mean, if I ever see that anywhere in my life, I'm 100,000% calling the police because I don't think that she really felt like she had... Anyone to turn to. Yeah. Obviously. Or doesn't know how to start that conversation with right. someone. Sure. Because there's no outwardly signs of a black eye or, right. you know, a broken arm or any type of injury. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't know maybe where to start that conversation with any friends or anyone. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, sadly enough, no one came to help to Angie's cries. A specific event that Angie recalls is Daniel coming home one night, and she was incredibly fearful of him at this point. At the time, she was pregnant. So at the time, she was pregnant, and when he came home, she ran into her son's room and picked him up out of his crib. Daniel ended up getting a hold of her, and he strangled her to the point that she passed out. Whoa. Which is super scary in of itself, but also the fact that she was pregnant is awful. And when she came to, he was pulling her hair and dragging her into the kitchen, and he sat there with her with a butcher knife to her throat. Wow. So things escalated about as far as they possibly could without Angie literally losing her life. You know, being dead, yeah. And thank God... You know, Angie, after all of these events, she does eventually call the cops specifically after this one. But by the time they show up, he would be gone. Yeah. Trying to call for help. But if he's not there, there's not really a whole lot they can do. And I just have such strong feelings, especially I I felt them before, but I feel them even stronger now after looking through this case specifically. And I know that this happens a lot, but. I just feel like there's not really a whole lot of support for victims when they find themselves in these situations. I mean, stalking and domestic violence, right? you know, because if the perpetrator or whatever isn't there, I mean, it just kind of seems like there's not a whole lot they can do. It's a very delicate situation. And I think that, you know, our police or police in general, when they respond, if they get a person who has any predisposed disposition on domestic violence, 
if the perpetrator is not at the scene, mm-hmm. a lot of the times the victim is asked in a way where, unfortunately, they're felt they're made to feel that they are going to be hurting the perpetrator's life by either pressing charges, right, um, or they're just because the depends on how the conversation happens, right? But if the officer is not delicate enough to ask, you know, what happened, it turns into a he said, she said type situation. Um, Or maybe the victim is interrogated incorrectly and they're now feeling, maybe I'm blowing things out of proportion. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm remembering things incorrectly. Yeah. So it's a very delicate situation, but without the person there... It's her word against his, and there's no two sides of a story, and, you know, there's no, there's no perpetrator. Right. They can't do much, yeah. It's so frustrating. And if he's not there, and they said, you know, is there anything else you want us to do? Well, no, and, you know, there's Mm -hmm. no reason to hunt him down. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. TV is crazy. It, It really, really is. So in 1999, after nearly three years of this kind of abuse, Angie did end up taking out a restraining order, and this prohibited Daniel from entering their home. And, you know, again, on that same topic, like, I I don't feel like these really provide any sort of protection, yet I feel like it's more of a, a paper trail to right. have a restraining order out on somebody. Like, it, it's, your, it's your step one to be able to prove that you've checked all of your boxes if things need to go to court and be handled that way. So I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying don't go get a restraining order on somebody if you are feeling threatened or anything like that. Um, but the paper itself doesn't build a wall, exa- right? Exactly. It doesn't build a physical wall between you and the person. So it's just you know, a social way to say, I don't want this person near me. Mm-hmm. Should I shoot him because he comes in my door? I did what I could. <laughs> right. I mean, it, 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 that's like you said, it's, it's a paper mm-hmm. shield. Exactly. Yeah. So again, if you're finding yourself in a situation like this, I absolutely 100% support you in going and getting a restraining order for sure. Um, I just wish that the initial one itself provided, more protection than it can right sometimes so three months later in march of 2000 angie ended up meeting a man by the name of brandon and she actually moved in with him she moved in with him and her three kids and daniel ended up finding out about angie and brandon's relationship and this did not settle well with him at all According to him, he was trying to do everything that he could to salvage their relationship. Mm. And I think that's kind of a skewed perception on his part. I mean, I think that he absolutely knew that what he was doing was not healthy or okay. But, you know, he has this perception that what he was doing was trying to salvage their relationship. And he was so distraught during this time that he was even telling himself, you know, I'm seriously going to end up killing her. What? Yeah. He, he was, he was furious and I think kind of lost in this skewed perception of reality and really navigating what his actual behavior was projecting on her. And one in seven stalking victims 
do end up moving as a result of their victimization. And 29% of stalking victims fear that it will never stop. I'm surprised that that 29% is as low as it is. Um, cause I can't see how more people wouldn't be fearful that, Oh my gosh, is this ever going to end? But yeah. 30% is still pretty still high. Not, yeah. And that one in seven feel like they have to move. And I thought that would be more. I kind of thought it would be too. I mean, I think there, there are somewhat different levels of stalking. Yes. I'm sure people that truly right. are fear, fearful of their lives and, you know, have someone physically showing up and threatening them are like, okay, I'm, like, my only other option is to relocate yeah. myself. So still in 2000, we jump forward just one month to April. Angie experienced the extent that Daniel was willing to go to to carry out this revenge of finding out about her and Brandon's relationship. Her and Brandon were home watching TV one night and they could hear someone walking around in their kitchen. There was a long hallway from where they were watching TV and Brandon actually caught a glimpse of Daniel's shoulder. And at that point, um. Angie instantly grabbed her cell phone. She turned it off and she thinks that Daniel heard her turn her cell phone off because he kind of like they could sense that he like paused for a minute and then he left and he went out the front door. Whoa. They called the police, but the police couldn't locate him. But they did um, do a search of their house. And what they ended up finding down in their basement was a bag with some gloves. And Angie also had one of those butcher block knife sets in her kitchen. And what was missing from that was a butcher knife. Of course it was. They did end up finding Daniel eventually nearby, and he had the butcher knife on him. What? Yeah, he kept it on him. He didn't dispose of it, and he was arrested, and he was charged with burglary. Okay. For stealing the knife. Oh. <laughs> I understand that that may have been the easiest crime to prove in that situation because you have someone being like, this is missing from my home. Okay, we found the guy. He has said item that's missing from your phone or from your phone, from your home. I get that. What about the but more should have been done. The fact that they found a bag and gloves down in their basement and that he had obviously entered their home is that not I mean, there's burglary, yes, because he took something, but also breaking and entering, right? And violating the I, I don't know if the restraining order carried on to her new residence because it just prevented him from coming to, from what I understood, it prevented him from coming from to their, their old home that they lived in oh, together. Not a certain feet away from her. Not, not that it indicated from what I could mm. find. Um, okay. I don't know why it wouldn't have included a certain radius from her and her and their family themselves, but... For sure, they're residents. So I think that that's why maybe nothing was um, pursued as far as that goes from this incident with right. that restraining order. So they just did burglary. Okay. Just burglary. Daniel was found guilty of this burglary in November of 2000, and he was actually sentenced to eight years in prison for this. That's solid for a knife. It is a solid good chunk of time. But he kind of 
laughs at this eight years and he was like, oh, eight years, that's nothing. I can totally do that. Okay, go for it. Yeah, he's like, whatever, eight years. Take your shot. That's eight years, bro. Go ahead. No big deal. And in this same interview with Daniel, he does say that um, that night he was on the path to doing harm to Angie and maybe himself or the other guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was angry with Angie and he ended up only serving seven years before he was released on parole. So he almost finished the eight year sentence, but not quite. And at this point, Daniel kind of drops off from Angie. I think enough time had passed. I don't think that this is always the case, but he kind of more or less just like kind of let her go. Sure. At this point. Yeah. Seven years to think about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just another quick statistic to throw at you. So out of those millions of stalking cases that happen every year, the 13.5 million cases, only about 7% of these stalkers are taken into custody. Yeah, that's a that's a small percentage of 13 million. It really is a small percentage. And in a lot of these cases, weapons are used to harm or threaten the victims. That's one out of five cases. So about 20% wow. of that. And intimate partner stalkers are the most likely stalked to approach, threaten, and harm their victims. So, so scary. Like I said, you know, Daniel eventually moves on when he gets out of jail. And in 2007, shortly after being released, he started a relationship with a woman he met online, and her name is Jennifer. Okay. He said that they had a lot in common because they both had been in unhealthy relationships. Which side? But okay. (laughs) you go ahead and take that for whatever you want. Yeah. He says that she was smart, a single parent who had her priorities straight, and this really attracted him to her. And after some time, Daniel ends up moving in with her and her kids. Their relationship did start to go south because according to Daniel, she was starting to be controlling. And like I said earlier, Daniel did not like being told what to do. So this did not sit well with him to be with somebody who kind of wanted to wear the pants in the relationship. Mm. And one day they got into an argument and he ended up moving out. And this is kind of where we start to see Daniel showing a pattern of behavior. So he moves out and he kind of pretty obsessively starts calling Jennifer, leaving lots of voicemails, not very nice voicemails, pretty aggressive and abusive. And in February, so on February 25th, 2008, Jennifer ends up making a phone call to the local police at around 1.30 in the morning. The responding officer, Officer Hendrickson, states that it's not the first time that he had been called out to her residence. They responded to a burglary in process, but Jennifer told police that she had had her ex break into her house. Oh, okay. So not that necessarily anything was being stolen, but I think maybe that's how they coded it to dispatch somebody. And Officer Hendrickson begins to become concerned with Daniel's pattern of behavior. He's familiar with Daniel at this point. And he was showing up multiple times a day to Jennifer's house, multiple days in a row. Like pretty... Consistent. Consistent behavior. And he even says that, you know, he'd never seen that level of persistence from somebody. 
and two and three stalkers pursue their victims at least once per week, many daily, using more than one method. So that could be a physical encounter, that could be phone calls, that could be different forms of technology, like we talked about social media, you know, emails, whatever. So... Once a week is enough. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's plenty. For it to be happening daily is exhausting. I can't to imagine say the least. being that officer and knowing that this is happening on a daily basis. In my head, I'd be like, "Don't you have anything better to do? Like seriously, don't, don't you don't have a job? Like, you don't just have... get over it. Also, you have three kids mm-hmm. that you should be spending. Hold on, God, that is so complicated. It's so complicated. So that night, Daniel had snuck into Jennifer's home, and she woke up again to him standing over her. Oh, my goodness. And this time, he was holding a knife to her neck. Oh, shit. And he was covering her mouth with his other hand. Jennifer ended up fighting him off, and he dropped the knife, and she was able to recover the knife and stabbed him. Fuck yeah, girl. Hell yeah. And Daniel fled from the house after that. Oh, I was not expecting that. I know. So she really, really fought in this case, Officer Hendrickson located him nearby and he was bleeding a short while later after he had come to the house and Daniel was transported to the hospital. Furthermore, he was charged that night with aggravated stalking and assault. Yes. He pled guilty to these charges in Damn. November uh, November 16th, 2009, but he was granted probation and released. What? He wasn't even incarcerated. For this event, he was just automatically granted parole. For what reason? I wish I could tell you. Because, I mean, you would look in his file and obviously see, okay, this guy has had a restraining order put against him before from a previous partner. We've gone out to this specific location multiple times. It's an issue. It's it's an issue. It's not a one-off. No. It wasn't a snapped kind of moment thing. Mm-mm. No. No, that this guy has an obsession that was literally almost deadly. Absolutely. And could have been deadly Man. in more than one occasion by this probation? point. Probation? Just probation. I know. It's Oof. infuriating. I'd be pissed if I was her. So pissed. Beyond, I I would be down at that courthouse. So pissed and then so scared. Like this is is a situation where if I was Jennifer, I would definitely be feeling like I needed to uproot my life and go move somewhere. Because if somebody already broke into my house and woke me up in the middle of the night holding a knife to my throat, yeah, I'm probably not living in that same town or state or even that same side of the country anymore. If my government isn't going to help me... By taking the problem away, I'm going to get away from the problem. Absolutely. Especially when it's that severe. A hundred percent. So with Daniel's last victim, unfortunately, Jennifer would not be his last victim and he would end up meeting another woman on the in- on the internet and her identity has been kept completely anonymous. Okay. Um, I watched a documentary episode that covered pretty much a majority of this. And then when I looked up stuff online, trying to see if I could find her identity, she's, she's, she's been left out of it. So do we give her our name? Just to, we know we're talking about. We'll call her Becky. Oh, Becky. Yeah. With the good hair. (laughs) The good hair. With the good hair. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So Daniel and Becky dated very shortly. Um, but with his hot temper, she, 
broke up with him really, really quickly. Oh, good for her. Yeah, she was not having it. And after they split, Daniel had been stalking her around town and was pretty immediately threatening her. He was trying to keep tabs on her, find out who she was with, doing that whole thing. And in August 2010, I believe this was about two and a half years after the incident with Jennifer, police in St. Clair County, Missouri, responded to the scene of a break-in. When police arrived, Becky is hysterical and there is blood all over her house. Wow. Police come in and they find a man lying in her bed with a stab wound in his chest. And this is the body of 27-year-old James Raymond <gasps> Vale, and he became oh, Daniel's no. last victim. Oh, no. James and Becky had met that night and went back to her place. They checked the front door to make sure it was locked before they went to bed. She says in a police interview... Afterwards, they ask her, was the front door locked? She's like, yes, I locked it. And I even think that he checked it before we went to bed that night. And after that is when Daniel had broken into her home. Becky thinks that Daniel was outside of her house watching them the whole time. She was taken down to the police station for her statement and identifies Daniel as the man who had killed James. And, you know, this 100%, not just in, like, the long run of his history, but in this specific situation, this totally could have been avoided prior to the murder. Police had been called out to her house on two or three other occasions, you know, pretty similar to Jennifer's situation. It sounds like, and just the day prior, they had a discussion with him about carrying a knife down to her home when he had shown up one day, why they didn't do anything. Then I have no idea if he was showing up at her house with, A knife. knife. Like, I would consider that to be pretty threatening behavior and would do something about it. But maybe she elected to not press charges. I don't know. And this is the first time that Daniel gets eyes on James. And Becky claims that Daniel was furious and he just had like this really, really dark look in Mm. his eyes. From Daniel's account... She was the target that night, and he didn't even know who James was and that they were seeing each other. But we kind of know this to not be true because he at least got eyes on James in the day part prior to this. He claims that when he went into the house, the guy was there and he felt a surge of emotion and just felt, you know, to hell with it. He claims that it was pitch black in the room and he misjudged his distance, and that's when he stabbed James and Daniel what? was arrested for the murder of James Vale. Wow. So whether or not James was his actual intended victim or not, Daniel finally reaches the point of rage far enough to where he does carry out a murder. Right. My head works in weird ways sometimes, and I'm thinking maybe in his own demented way, he was thinking, if I kill this guy... Maybe he'll get a couple of years in jail or prison, but there'll be no one in Becky's life and I can once again enter. Right. Leave her alive. I think that that sounds like a much more likely option than that it was so pitch black that my distance was misjudged on who I was stabbing in the bed. Yeah. It's not. No. Not very believable. Mm -mm. 
So when it comes to his sentencing, in October 2011, Daniel goes to trial for James's murder, and he was found guilty of second-degree murder and waited eight weeks to be sentenced. I, I guess I kind of agree with second-degree murder in this situation, although I think one maybe could make the argument that it could have been premeditated for first-degree murder, but my guess is maybe they felt like they would kind of get a slam right. a home run conviction right just going for second degree he is currently serving a life sentence in jefferson city correctional center in jefferson missouri and his sentence which we've talked about before and maybe not all of our listeners know this but a life sentence doesn't mean that you're going to jail for the rest of your life a life sentence can carry a sentence anywhere from what 25 to 40 Maybe. Years? I think it depends on the state. Yes, it it definitely does depend on the state. And in Missouri, his sentence carried a maximum term of 30 years. And maybe it also depends on the crime in which you're receiving a life sentence for as well. He so in 2011, he was sentenced a life term with a maximum of 30 years, and he will be eligible for probation in 2034. This would only be after him serving 23 years of that 30-year sentence. And Angie, his first First. love, even made an appearance and testified at Daniel's sentencing on December 15th, 2011. She has a... I mean, not only does she have a pretty powerful story, but I love that she has carried on in in trying to help make sure that um, Daniel pretty much does not get granted this early probation. And as we've talked about before, through tragedy, there can come connection. So Bonnie Vale, who is James Vale's mom. Uh, Okay. And Angie ended up becoming really good friends. Oh, at Daniel's sentencing and and making this connection and the two of them pretty much are on an endless flight endless fi- flight they're on an endless fight to make sure that Daniel is never released oh, good. on parole um Angie talks about the very real fear of what he would potentially do if he ever was released on parole i mean yeah. even though they haven't had a whole lot of direct contact in a long time. I'm sure years later, she's still very, very scared. And, you know, Bonnie being the grieving mother of her son's murder is like, no, I'm going to look into the depths of every nook and cranny of this guy's history that I can to, to present at any parole hearing so that a judge does not see him fit in any way, shape or form to release back into society to release. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Angie's like, if if he were to get released or, you know, when he does get released, you know, he's going to be angry. He's not going to have a job. He's not going to have somewhere to live. He's not going to have a car. What's he going to do? He's. And unfortunately, our prison system is not helping, I'm sure, rehabilitate in any type of way. No. And, you know, not giving him any tools or classes or you know, exploring other options to put that energy into. So, and even within that, you would have to have somebody that would be recognizing that they need yes, and that they want the help. Right. Um, there's a gentleman within this documentary who works at like a domestic violence and sexual violence organization. And 
he specifically heavily mentions that, that, you know, it's not just about putting someone on parole and making sure they have a parole officer and doing these sporadic check-ins. You need like really thorough, in-depth follow-up and counseling and help. And even with all those resources, the person has to be willing and open to accepting all of that. Any other, it sounds weird to say this, but addiction. You For know, sure. It's like yeah. drugs, alcohol, mm-hmm. cigarettes, whatever. Right. The first step towards recovery is admitting that you have a problem. Absolutely. Just, again, it's weird to say it like that, but that's how I think of it. I'm like, you have to say I have a problem in order for any help to help. For sure. And, yeah. and it is, it is hard to make that, you know, confession to yourself you have to be able to admit to yourself so that that door can open in your mind you know like just a little personal story about me you know I you know started drinking when I was in high school and drank heavily through college and then started drinking really heavily through my early adult years and about a little over three years ago I was just like I cannot do this anymore. You know, I wasn't like a a wake up in the morning with the shakes alcoholic, but my relationship with alcohol was really, really super unhealthy. And it's super fucking hard if you don't meet, especially with alcohol, if you don't meet like all of these little checks down Mm -hmm. a you, you have a, a problem to be able to admit that to yourself, you know, it's like, Hey, I go to work. I'm in a good relationship. I haven't lost any friendships that I know of. Um, (laughs) you know, things like that, you know, I haven't hit a rock bottom, but being able to identify at a certain point, like, no, I, I do need help or Mm -hmm. I do need to eliminate this, you know, out of my life. Yeah. You absolutely have to, in order for your mind to accept it, you do have to, accept that fact yeah and you know i will add that the same goes for someone for dv that's the victim in the situation totally that help is not going to help unless they admit they need help Mm -hmm. or reach out and say i need help exactly because otherwise they're going to continue saying it's okay right or it's a one time. It's going to get better. Mm-hmm. They promise this. They promise that. It's right. going to get better. And unless there's, you know, that inner speaker saying, okay, this is not okay. Right. I need help. Then it's not going to come sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so I just wanted to throw out a couple last little statistics to you guys as far as convictions and in certain states that revolve around stalking. So fewer than one third of states classify stalking as a felony in all circumstances, including the first offense. Wow. So just wow. For first of all, for that. And then more than half of states classify stalking as a felony upon the second of subsequent offense. Okay. Or when the crime involves aggravating factors. Okay. So it's unfortunate that it has to escalate. And don't get me wrong. I do understand that, oh, I might get, you know, hated on for saying this, but, you know, sometimes someone might be blowing something out of proportion. Right. 
Or it is a one-off. Or it is a one-off. Until it looks like a pattern. And luckily, they're not waiting to the third or fourth time. Mm -hmm. Some states are ready to jump on it on the second time. And I understand that you don't just want to slap a felony on someone's record because someone maybe just felt uncomfortable in a situation. You know, I think it's fair to say that uh, some people will weaponize something like calling out the cops and alleging something. Right. Could potentially harm someone's life by a felony. So I think someone could weaponize that Mm -hmm. and it not always be used the right way. Right. So. Absolutely. Maybe it is the right call. Right. I, yeah, and I don't necessarily disagree with with that, but I can say that I disagree with that way more than half of our states need to classify stalking (laughs) as a felony upon a second offense, especially if it involves aggravating factors. And so do we have some states that don't classify it as as a felony at all? No, some do one, some do two. I think that that there are different levels of when they start prosecuting from state to state. I I can't say 100%, but I can say pretty confidently, I don't think that there is a state that doesn't have stalking Mm. laws. Okay. But as far as, like, the earliest stages Mm -hmm. of prosecuting people, that's kind of where those those percentages lie. And when we talk about aggravating factors, you know, we're talking about possession of a deadly weapon, violation of a court order. So that would be that um, restraining restraining order or a condition of probation or parole. If the victim is under the age of 16, which that should definitely be on that list. Yeah. Um, Or if it's the same victim as prior occasions. Yep. Okay. So it's not just like someone stalks you and their second offense is stalking me. You know, it would be two instances with you. With me. Yeah. So that is the case of Daniel Thompson. And yeah, I just really wanted to, I, I, I feel like this subject doesn't really get covered a whole lot. And when you really sit down and think about it, it is probably one of the most, if not the most terrifying situation to be a part of especially when it escalates to the levels of what we kind of have in in this case specifically right yeah that's a crazy case and we'll put some resources on our social medias for Mm -hmm. um you know anyone that needs to reach out who's in the situation or maybe know someone who might be in that type of situation you know luckily some of these women eventually called the police but you know there's always resources um so we'll put those on our social media we'll put some links in there for you guys and always recognize the signs early i mean i know sometimes it's hard to do but you know if you're if your gut's telling you that something doesn't feel right about a certain situation your intuition is right way more often than it's not yeah that gut man let me tell you. It really, I wish I'd listened to it more in my yeah. life. Again, unless it's cheese. I'm yeah. doing something exactly. about it. So. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the case. That's the case. Thank you, Bree. And stick around if you want to hear not a fun, my own fun stocking story. We'll see Ooh. you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
this is when I was working at, um, I mean, I'll just say it because I don't give a fuck. I was working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Okay. Um, so long, 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 long story short, there was this um, customer who was somewhat of a regular. He, he, he was, there were some screws loose in his head, okay. right? And we all knew him at the office by skin flute. <laughs> okay. Because he, that's how he referred to his penis to one of the guys. And the guy's like, oh, that's skin flute. So that's oh what we would call him, gosh. skin flute. So he was already this grimy like, guy who no one yeah. wanted to help and all this thing. Totally. And I um, was working one Saturday. Saturday is like, you know, skeleton crew and, and whatnot. And he calls me and he's like, this car doesn't go fast enough, faster than I need it to go. And I was like, well, you know, we, we put governors on the car. They can't go as fast as the meter <laughs> says because you're in a rental. Yeah. Um, And then he's like, well, come get your piece of shit car. And I was like, okay, where are you? I'll go get it. Um, He then calls me. He tells me that he can't find the car. He's down here at Clackamas Mall. And then so I'm like, okay, fine. You can't find it whatever i'll call the police report it's stolen i call the police and they're like the car is parked in our parking lot <laughs> so i was like okay what? he's like yeah that guy came in earlier to make a police report of some sort and he left the car here and walked away and i was like okay well we found the car fantastic yeah weird and he's <laughs> like um then i was like okay you know i don't remember his name but skin flute <laughs> i was like <laughs> Meet me. Um, I need to get the keys from you so I can pick up the car because you still have the keys. That way I don't have to pay a locksmith, get a new key, et cetera, et cetera. Save us like $500. Save you $500. Um, He's like, well, if you meet me down here, you're not getting these damn keys back. I have a shotgun in the back of my car and da, 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 da. Oh, okay, I was like, oh, that's cool. He's like, I'll meet you at the car. I was like, no, I don't want to meet you at the car where you said there is a gun. Yeah. And then I, um, eventually I called the police and uh-huh. I was like, I need an escort to come For help sure. me get these keys back. Yeah. Um, so I did that. He threw the keys at my chest. That's a, that's a whole fun story. Um, and then this was, I mean, this was 2011-ish, 12-ish, okay. whenever I started working at yeah, Enterprise. Yeah. And they, um... So wait, what happened at that point? So I got the keys back. Okay, so I got the keys back and, you know, I had to charge him for his rental and whatnot. So like Monday came around and um, he's calling me and I have these calls recorded. I probably still have the recording somewhere, but he's telling me that he's like in a, like an eagle's box, like a nest box, like sniping box. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's out looking at like towards the office and stuff. I'm like, super cool. I feel so safe right now. Oh my, what the <laughs> He's like, I can see your office from my house. I'm up at a, at a like a lookout box. And then I was like, great. Um, and then I was leaving work. Did he and call your phone specifically? No, the office. Oh, okay. Um, oh, so that's what I was going to say. By the time that this phone call happened on Monday where he was, he told me he had eyes on their office, um, I had already done some Googling and <laughs> of already, course you did. I had already searched this <laughs> yeah, guy through and through. And a year prior, he had threatened the mayor of Gresham's life and he had been in jail for oh, that. Oh, shit. So okay. I was like, oh, this guy's legit. Yeah. 
as far as threats go. Right. So come Monday afternoon, leaving work, you know, this happened early in the day. So I'm like, whatever, I'm laughing it off. Like, whatever, it's done. It's over with. We're not going to rent him a car. I'm driving home and he's very, he's bald, old, beat up, like Ford truck that he came to rent this Mm -hmm. other car in. And I used to work out in Gresham. Right. So that was like a good seven miles, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. From where we used to live, and I used to just go down one road, right, just Powell, all the way down to Gresham and back, and like two minutes out of the office, I was like, there's no way that's him following me. Oh, my God. I was like, oh, shit. Okay. I was like, okay, there's no way. Um, And then... You know, cars got in between and whatnot. And I sure. lost him for a little bit. But when I got 10 minutes from home, I was like, oh, fuck, there he is. And now he's on my ass. And then I I didn't go home. I had the wherewithal to not go home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I drove past the house and I drove into the 7-Eleven that used to be on that corner uh-huh. on 82nd and yeah. Powell. And we're opposite... We're on opposite sides of a parking lot. He pulled so, into the parking lot, too. So he too. pulled into the parking lot behind me. <sighs> Sorry. Oh <my laughs> so God. I'm sitting in the car. I'm locked the, I've locked the doors because I was like, if he gets out and walks to the store, I'm good. Right. Right? I'll take off. Sure. No problem. Yeah, yeah. If he comes towards my car, same thing. I'm putting the shit in reverse, but he's out of his car, so I have some, some time to get start. away. Right. Right. So both of the butts of our car are facing each other, right? We're opposite directions. He gets out of his car. He comes and stands behind my car to where he's looking towards. He's looking at me in my rearview mirror. Oh, my God. He's just staring me down. Have I not told you this before? I've never heard this story. He's staring me down through my rearview mirror. So I'm just staring at him in my rearview mirror. And then I was like, okay, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to hit him, but I'm shaking like a leaf right now. Yeah. And then he goes back to the passenger side of his car. There's movements in the parking lot, so I can't just like whip out and leave. He gets out a gas tank and a shovel from the front passenger seat and puts it in the trunk of his car, in the bed of his truck. Fatina. Yes. And then, so at that point, I reverse the fuck out of there, and I'm going to make a ride onto 82nd. He gets in his truck, runs to the driver's side, gets in his truck, and starts following me, too. And then, so I didn't go home. I made a loop to see if he would follow me again, and then he did. (laughs) So I, I called Kara at that point, and I was like, how do I get... To the police station by your parents' house. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I was driving towards mm-hmm. too when I finally lost him. The one on them. 60th and Burnside. Yep. Yeah. And that's when I finally lost him. Unfortunately, and I will put this on the record, Enterprise, my company didn't do shit about it. When wow. I told them, hey, I had a customer do this, this, and this. Here's the police report. Here's what happened. I need to either temporarily move offices or I need to do something else. For sure. Um, absolutely nothing. Um, wow. So that's my <laughs> terrifying. That is crazy. It was on stalker because it didn't happen again, luckily. Um, but he stuck to me home that night. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, 
it's oh my heart's racing just oh thinking my about gosh. it no that is crazy i've never it heard was, that story before yeah and good thing that you did have the wherewithal to not drive home because yeah. it it could have yep. very well turned into a situation like that yeah wow and mind you i'm in like a skirt and some heels yeah, exactly. and a jacket so right. i wasn't like ready to throw down not that i would have i mean i probably would have but you know it's just oh man my heart just starts racing when i'm thinking about it because i'm like okay i think i did everything i needed to do yeah. but you know maybe i pissed them off maybe a little too much on the phone too oh my gosh <laughs> that is crazy yeah okay well if you feel like someone's following you yeah. and you're on your way home don't go home don't go home don't go home either go to a public station or uh, a public place public public place or a police station yeah wow yeah that's crazy well nice segue into that story i'm so sorry that happened to oh, you oh it's okay it's a fun story i have a bunch of enterprise stories that oh, are just so gosh. fucking crazy i'm sure i'm sure yeah my favorite's collecting you know overdue bills from strippers on saturday mornings all in ones <laughs> yes <laughs> they're past due 200 dollars they're like oh sweetheart here you go <laughs> i'm not overdue now don't like, worry about it stack exactly <laughs> Oh, shit. That's funny. <sighs> okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Don't okay. be a stranger. We'll catch you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye.